My name is Fred. I am one of the pastors here. And I want to start off asking you a question, and it's this. Uh, how many of you have heard of Minecraft? Raise your hand. Yes. How many of you never want to hear about Minecraft again? Okay. Well, unfortunately, I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. For those of you who don't know what Minecraft is, first of all, I want to know what rock you've been living under for the past eight years. Uh, <laughs> because it is everywhere. It is this uh, video game where people can play on multiple platforms. It's a building game, it's a, it's a, it's a creative game, it's, it's, it's all sorts of things, but one way to play Minecraft is in what's called survival mode. And, and what you do in survival mode is you have a mission to complete, but as you complete that mission, you also have to build housing for yourself, you have to find food, uh, you have enemies that are trying to attack you, uh, you've got all this stuff kind of stacked up against you, and it's survival mode. You're trying to survive and accomplish something. And so let me ask you this, knowing that that's kind of what Minecraft calls survival mode, survival mode, does that sound familiar to your life in any way? Like, have you ever been in survival mode where, where you've got all this stuff kind of coming at you and, and stacking up against you? Have you ever been in a time in your life where life wasn't working out great and you just felt like you were fighting off enemies? Now, I know I've been in survival mode quite a few times in my life. I've been in survival mode when there's a newborn in our house, right? That is survival mode. I even tell new parents, congratulations, you're in survival mode right now. Like, like literally, that's the goal. You survive and you're winning, right? Like, like, like that, that's, that's survival mode. When tragedy strikes our house, it's survival mode, right? Anytime we've moved, it feels like survival mode. And here's what I've learned. Whether you move two miles away or 2,000 miles away, it's still survival mode, right? It, it, everything changes. When we don't have enough money to pay the bills, survival mode. When my own sin bogs me down, survival mode. When God wants to accomplish something, but I have no idea how that's gonna happen, that's survival mode. Now, any of these sound familiar to you? Any of these sound close to maybe a survival mode that you've been in or survival mode that you are in? You know, we just had a bunch of seniors stand up here and, 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 and for, the, for the few that are still in here because they were here first service and have been dismissed. But, but what's interesting about your senior year is you're about to enter into this whole season of life that you've never experienced before, whether it's college or, or not college, whatever that next chapter is. And, and you may think you know survival mode, but you're about to hit a whole bunch of new survival modes, right? And so this message isn't, of course, just for them. It's for any of us that have experienced survival mode because here's the deal. Whether you're in it now, whether you just came out of it, there's gonna be another one coming. But the Bible doesn't have the term survival mode. The Bible calls survival mode trials. And here's what we're going to see today. We're going to see that a trial is like an experiment, right? It's like an experiment where, unfortunately, the results may vary. And here's where I'm getting that terminology. Have you ever seen a commercial that's promoting some product? Right, and they make you think this is the best product that for three easy payments of $19.99 you have to get, right? But then, as the commercial is about to fade to black, this announcer in a really quick voice 
says what? Results may vary. Right? A trial is this experiment where you get to go through it where the results may vary. Now, I know when I say that, maybe what's, when I use the term trial and, and I use the term experiment, what may be coming to your mind is like this mad scientist, right, where he's, he's putting all these formulas together and drawing this stuff on the board and trying to figure out how something works so that he can get the, the so he can figure out what's wrong or what's right and, and all this stuff. And, and, it, and it's easy sometimes when we're going through a trial or we're in survival mode to think that God is the mad scientist and he's put us there to see what's gonna happen. Now that makes for a great story, but it's really bad theology because God doesn't put us in a trial so that he can see What's gonna happen? God puts us in a trial to show you the results of what's gonna happen. God already knows what's gonna happen. He puts you in this trial so that you can see the results. In the survival mode that you're in, if you're in survival mode right now, if, 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 if you're under a trial right now, God has you there so that you can see the results. Why? Why does he do this? It's so that you can make adjustments and the next time do it better. Because church, you know what will always come your way? Trials, right? They will always come your way. And trials are designed by God to show us how to live better the next time trial, a trial comes. And so if you're in survival mode today, let me tell you, today is gonna be great because what we're gonna see is we're gonna see this. We're gonna see how to thrive when you can barely survive. And I'm not gonna ask for you to raise your hand if you're barely surviving, but let me tell you about a time that I barely survived real quick. It was during lifeguard certification. And as part of my lifeguarding certification, I had to tread water for five minutes holding a brick above my head, right? That was barely surviving. There was literally a point where the wa- my head was tilted back. I'm holding this brick, brick above, above, above my head, and I am, I am doing it because they taught you to not do the kick, but to do like the egg beater with your legs, and so I'm doing that, and like my nose and lips are all that sticking out of the water, <laughs> Right? Sometimes life feels that way, doesn't it? That sometimes life feels like all you've got is your nose and barely your lips sticking out of the water. Well, today, if that describes you, I've got some good news. And if it doesn't, take notes because one day you're gonna feel that way. Because today we're gonna see how to live, whether in survival mode or under these, true, under these huge trials, how to live in survival mode, how to live under huge trials where life is actually getting better. So anybody need to know how to thrive today when you can barely survive? If so, turn with me to James. We're gonna start a new series in the book of James. We're gonna do James verses one through 18. Now, we've got a lot of verses that we're gonna cover today. If you need a Bible, there's one in front of you. It's on page 851 in that Bible. You can also download the Bible app. We're under events and under Fellowship Asheville. But, but, But here's the deal. We're covering a lot of verses today. And we're gonna go at a pretty fast pace. And, and, and my prayer for us is that, is that the Spirit of God will speak to you about something today. Something that you need to take out of here as truth for you to hold on to and for you to trust. And don't worry, 
like I said, we're covering a lot of ground today. These first 18 verses in the book of James are almost like the table of contents for the rest of the letter because he's gonna hit these topics again, right? And so, so today we're gonna go at a pretty fast pace, but, but as you're turning there too, I also wanna let you know that, that we're in this series, we're just starting today called Wholehearted as we study the book of James. Because one of the things you'll see as we go through this letter uh, that James wrote is that his desire is for people who, who live like this. If they live with one foot planted in the wisdom of the world, the wisdom that, that people outside the faith say is wisdom, and they live with one foot planted in the truth and reality of the gospel, he, he, he calls that a divided heart. And what his desire is, is that instead of living with one foot here and one foot here, you've actually got both feet firmly planted in the truth of God's word, in the truth of the gospel, in the truth of our faith. Because when you're doing that, James will say that is a wholehearted Faith. Now, here's the deal with the book of James. I'm gonna give you a little heads up. It's almost like Proverbs, if you've ever read Proverbs. Proverbs is like truth, 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 application, 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 application. James is like that. And it's real easy to go through the book of James and think that you have to do more or have to do something. But James's heart in this is the same as my heart for us as a church. That as we go through this, I don't want us to do more stuff in our faith. I want us to have more faith in our faith. I want us to have more trust in our God. And from that, do whatever God asks you to do, right? I want us to have both feet firmly planted in the gospel and then see what happens, see what God does in and through us. And so in our study together, my hope is that we do walk with more faith and trust tomorrow than you did today, than you are today, and then on Tuesday than you did on Monday. Well, let me introduce you to James, uh, the way he introduces himself uh, to his readers. Chapter one, verse one says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now, here's what we know about James. Do a little background research on this. One of the things you'll find out is that James is actually related to Jesus. He's actually the little brother of Jesus. Imagine growing up with a big brother who is God. Right? Can you imagine those family dynamics? But what we also find out about James is that when Jesus was crucified and resurrected, and then he ascended into heaven and told his followers to go and make disciples of all nations, James did that. James didn't uh, stop following Jesus. He continued to follow Jesus. And he actually became a leader in this new thing called the church. At that time, it was called the way. And, and Jesus started this organization, if you will, and, and, and James bought in fully and became a leader of it. But what's interesting is when he introduces himself to us, when he introduces himself to these readers, he doesn't call himself a leader in my big brother's organization. He calls himself a what? A servant, a servant. And so to James, and this is what we're gonna see throughout the book too, a leader is a servant. And notice what he said, who he says that he serves. He says he serves God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so to him, those two things, his big brother and God the Father, were the same. 
He's a servant of God and he's a servant of Jesus Christ. When you talk about Jesus, you're talking about God. When you talk about God, you're talking about Jesus. In his mind and in his soul, those two things were the same. He knew that his big brother was God. And we can also see who he wrote this letter to. It says to the 12 tribes, and the dispersion. Now what happened when the, when the church started, uh, it was kind of centered in Jerusalem, but because of persecution, it spread and it went all over the place. And so James is writing a letter to those people who have said yes to Jesus that are scattered all over the place. And so James is writing to people who grew up Hebrew and people who grew up not Hebrew, but all of them have said yes to Jesus. And so he's writing to all kinds of people all over the place, but they all have one thing in common. And it's what he's starting off with. Look at verse two. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, and that word also means sisters, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so James is writing about survival mode. Because that's the one thing they have in common. It's the one thing that all kinds of people, all places have in common is trials. And he's showing that these trials actually have a preferred result, that you can actually be in survival mode. You can actually go through a trial and the results don't vary. You can go through a trial with a preferred result and this is what James is shooting for and he's reminding them that that preferred result is called perfect and complete. We use the word wholehearted because that's what perfect means biblically. It means whole. Now, it doesn't mean that to us. A lot of times we think of perfect and we think it means it has to look good on the outside no matter what the inside looks like. And if you don't believe me, invite people over to your house, right? And you clean your house and you make it look as clean as possible, but there's always that place where everything goes that you don't want out. It might be the laundry room, it might be a specific drawer, but whenever somebody starts walking towards it, you very nonchalantly deter them from going in there, right? Because the house looks what? Perfect, except for that room. That's what we think of perfect sometimes. In biblical terms, the word perfect means complete. It means integrity. It means what's true on the outside is also true on the inside. And what James is, what James is saying is that, is that when you go through a trial, you can end up with the same result. That's what wholehearted is. And wouldn't that feel like thriving? instead of surviving. But the question is, how do we get there? How do we get from where we are? How do we get there? How do we go from barely surviving where results may vary to thriving, to having this wholehearted faith? Well, here's the very first practical step. Look at verse five. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, then let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Now, James is saying, listen, if you're in the middle of a trial, if you're in the middle of survival mode, ask God something for something very specific. And what does James say that specific thing you ask for is? Wisdom. Wisdom. Now, wisdom is different than knowledge. Knowledge is what we get from reading, from memorizing the scripture, even from meditating on God's word. That's knowledge. Now, knowledge, knowledge is facts, right? 
Wisdom tell us, tells us what to do with those facts. Wisdom is applying God's word to every day in your life. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit, right? Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad because you know what to do with it. You see, wisdom is knowledge applied. That's why Paul said, listen, if knowledge is your goal, you know what you're gonna end up? Arrogant, self-righteous, puffed up was his words because that's what knowledge does. Wisdom takes that knowledge and knows what to do with it. And so James is saying, if you're in survival mode, here's what you do. You ask God, what passages of scripture do you want me to apply to my life right now? That's what wisdom is. God, what truth do you have for me that during this trial I need to learn to apply and learn to live by so that the next time I'm here, I won't do it again? Now for me, one of those passages that I go to a lot is found in Galatians 5, and it's the fruit of the Spirit. That the fruit of the Spirit is, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And oftentimes when I'm in survival mode and I'm under trial, I ask, what do these things look like? When I'm in survival mode, what does love look like? What is patience look like? What does self-control look like when I'm behind that car? What does self-control look like? You see, if you're in survival mode and facing a trial of some kind, you can pray and ask God to, to open his word to you and show you what truth he has for you. You can read your Bible and ask him to show you that truth. Has that ever been happening to you where, where, where you've been reading your Bible and there's a verse that jumps out and you could swear somebody added that verse since the last time you read that passage? Because it looks like you have never seen it before. At least your soul is telling you this is a brand new truth. That is God giving you wisdom and he wants you to do something with that truth. That's what James is saying, ask for wisdom. But here's what else I love about this. Notice, how does God give that wisdom? Stingily or what? Generously. Notice, who does he give it to? Does he give it to just his people or does he give it to anybody? He said he gives it to all. And then here's the part that I love too. Notice that he gives it without reproach. You know what that means? Y'all get this. This means if you're in a survival mode, if you're in a trial and you come to God and say, God, I need wisdom for this. He's never gonna say, wait, I gave you wisdom last Wednesday for this very same thing. Why didn't you do it then? He's not gonna, he's not gonna insult you. He's not gonna demean you. He's not gonna shame you. He will generously and to every person give wisdom. You know, this is why Bible translators have worked hard to translate the Bible into every language spoken on the planet so that that truth is available to all. And it's available to you when you ask. But here's the deal. James has a warning for us. Look at verse six. He says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, 
I wanted to do all those verses together because when you hear doubt, you need to understand that James is talking about a very specific kind of doubt, and he explains it in the in the term double-minded, because when we hear doubt, especially after we just finished a series like Unsubscribed where we talked about doubt, the doubt that James is talking about here is different than what we saw in Unsubscribed. Unsubscribed is when somebody has an honest question about who God is and how he works and, and maybe how life works, that they bring that to God as an honest question. That's one type of doubt. This type of doubt is very different because it's a double-minded person. In other words, this is a person who knows the truth of God's word and yet their foot is also planted over here and they're choosing to turn their back on God's word and accept what's over here as more true than God's word. Here's, here's what it looks like sometimes. It looks like going to, to Dr. Phil at four o'clock or whenever he comes on for the guidance for your day, right? It looks like going to WikiHow on how to deal with something instead of God's word. But the trick is, it's when you know what God's word says about it but what Dr. Phil or what some article on, on the internet says feels better than what God's word says. And you choose to go with what this says over what this says. That's the double-minded that James is talking about. And if that's you, you're gonna be tossed back and forth and back and forth. Now listen, there's nothing inherently necessarily wrong in psychology. I have studied psychology for over 20 years. I've studied human studies for over 20 years. And so I can speak to this very clearly. There is, there is I, I fully believe that all truth is God's truth. And, and Freud stumbled upon some great stuff when he stumbled upon defense mechanisms and how people respond when they're under stress and under worry and under fear. But what I've also seen in just my 20 years of studying psychology is I have seen uh, uh, diagnoses like bipolar, um, like autism, like ADHD. I have seen the criteria and the treatment plan and even the name of those change in the past 20 years. Because you see, those are shifting sands. What James is saying is that those like glean what you can from them, but they get run through the grid of scripture. Because scripture is the one that doesn't change and hasn't changed. Because what we're gonna see here in just a little bit before we go to communion is the reason the word of God doesn't change is because God doesn't change. And he has been the same and so we can trust him and those truths that we see are great truths, but we run them through the grid of Scripture. And when this, what's, what's over here, contradicts what's over here, we stand right here. And we stand in the truth of God's Word to avoid being tossed back and forth. And so the very first step when you're in survival mode is to ask God for wisdom to thrive. Now look at verse 9. It says, because James is going to shift gears here just a little bit. Remember, this is kind of like a table of contents. And he's gonna address another issue that, that, that spurs up trials. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a, like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers with the grass. The flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. 
Now, James switches from going to asking to wisdom to kind of this next thing to do. And he's using the context of the poor and wealthy to to talk about it. And he has a practical step for each one. That if you're poor, now keep in mind, in his time, 90% of the known world would have been considered poor. And poor by their standards is very different than poor by our standards. By our standards, what they said was poor, we would have considered unimaginable living conditions. And that was 90% of the world. And to that 90% of the world, James says, listen, if that is you, don't look down on your circumstances, but see a God who knows you and see a God who sees you. And in doing that, there is purpose and there is dignity in knowing that God sees beyond your poverty and sees you instead. The guy who who founded the the Ritz-Carlton Hotels did something that goes right in line with this that was completely countercultural. When he started the hotel, when he started this, this uh, hotel chain, he did it in a world where uh, he knew he wanted to, to do a very high class, uh, high level of excellence hotel chain. Um, but he also knew there was something kind of inherently wrong with the system because hotels of that caliber dealt with what was considered ladies and gentlemen of the time, that you had to be rich and wealthy, part of that other percentage to come to this hotel. And, and if you came to that hotel as a, as a lady or gentleman, the people who served you were considered servants and they were considered invisible and they were considered lower than you. Well, what the founder did, uh, because he had worked in those kind of hotels as a child, he started working in the hotel industry when he was 14 years old. And so what he would tell people when they started training with him is he would say, listen, you are not servants serving ladies and gentlemen. He'd say, I want you to consider yourself as this, that you are a lady or a gentleman serving a lady and a gentleman. That you are not invisible, you are not lower than, but that, and he's a believer, but that God sees you with with dignity, that God sees you with purpose. And so you're not a servant. You're a lady or a gentleman who serves ladies and gentlemen. Now, what was interesting is, is, is as his hotel chain expanded, he went to a certain country uh, where they told him, you, this, this type of hotel will not work in this country because the, the people who live in this country are lazy by culture. You will not get an honest day's work out of them. They will steal money from you. They will quit without notice. You're, this will not work. And he said, I don't believe it because they are humans. And humans have this stamp of God on them where they want dignity and they want purpose. And so he did the orientation. So he had 400 new employees there and he always did the orientations. He doesn't anymore, but, but anytime a new hotel opened, he did the orientation. And he stood there and he told them, we are ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. He had this whole curriculum that he went through. The next day, uh, before the training started, he looked up and he saw all these people coming into the building dressed like impeccably. The ladies had dresses and hats and the men had suits. And he thought, what are all these people doing here? This, the hotel's not even open. We're not taking guests. And somebody told me, he's like, oh, no, those aren't guests. Those are your workers. They heard what you said. And they are dressing like the ladies and gentlemen that you told them that they are. And they'd go in the locker room and put on their uniforms and then and they'd go to training and, and get to work. 
You see, this is what James is saying to the poor, saying to those in, in many ways who are in survival mode, is that to the poor, that, that they are to look and see their purpose and their dignity defined by God. And to the wealthy, he has more words and I think an even sterner warning that for them, they are to realize that the wealth and the success that they think gives them power is fleeting. And the money you have today, there is no guarantee that you're gonna have it tomorrow. The success that you have today, there's no guarantee that you have it tomorrow. And so to the poor, James says, take pride in how God sees you. And to the rich, he says, you have humility before God. But to all of us, I think what James is pointing to is that for all of us, we are to look beyond our circumstances to thrive. Because here's the deal, whether you're poor or whether you're rich, when you're in survival mode, sometimes that survival mode feels like it defines you, right? When you're a mom with a newborn baby and you got spit up on your shirt and, and you haven't taken a shower and who knows how long, like you think that defines you and it doesn't define you. And to thrive, sometimes you have to look beyond your circumstances. And so if you're in survival mode, maybe you need to look beyond your current circumstance to see what God sees, that he doesn't see a failure. He doesn't see someone who can't change. He doesn't see someone that can't make it. What he sees is he sees his child. And he sees a son or a daughter of a king. That's who he sees. And so is there something that you need to look beyond today, something that you need to see as God sees? Well, let's look at this next practical step to thrive when you can barely survive. And it seems a little tricky, uh, but hopefully I'll make it a little bit simple. Verse 12 says this, And blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. And so to thrive, here's what James is talking about. That to thrive, you must know the difference between a trial and a temptation. Right, that those two things are very different. That a trial, like we've talked about, a trial is this experiment to show you where you need to change. And James knows that in survival mode, when you're in a trial, it's real easy to blame somebody for that. Right, because there are multiple causes for a trial. It could be something that you did. It could be something that someone else did. It could be something that Satan did. But, all, but no matter what is the source of that trial, no matter what caused that trial, trials are really hard. And it's easy to blame someone. It's easy to, to blame the person who caused it. It's easy to, to blame Satan, maybe. It's even easy to blame God for putting you in this trial. But what we know about trials, or what we're seeing, is that trials are put in place for you to grow. And I know that when I go through a trial, when I'm in survival mode, I wanna get out. And if we get out, we stop that growth. If we get out, we stop the opportunity to see what we need to change when we go through the trial another time. Because no matter what caused the trial, God is using that trial to grow and to change you. And our temptation is to stop that growth. And when we blame, we stop that growth. And here's the deal. If God puts us in that survival mode, if God puts us in that trial to change us and to grow us, and we're tempted to leave that, 
That's not on God, that's on us, right? And a trial is God's way to grow us, but a temptation is our way to stop that growth. And we're tempted to step away by blaming and we're tempted to step away to to, to prevent that growth. It's a trap because what happens is that temptation leads to sin. Notice temptation isn't sin. Temptation leads to sin and that sin leads to destruction and God's desire is for you to grow. And so when you're in survival mode and you don't wanna grow, you wanna get out, that's when temptation will strike. That's when the temptation to stop growing will happen. And what James is saying is that when you face that kind of temptation, don't quit. Don't give up. That's what steadfast means is don't quit. But here's how. Here's how you don't quit. Look at verse 16. It says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And James says to to stay steadfast, to move from surviving to thriving, we have to remember that we have a God who can be trusted. Now here's what's interesting. A little pop quiz. See if you've been paying attention, all right? What have we been talking about this morning? The, yes, trials, very good, thank you. You're on staff, so if I'd known it was you, I wouldn't have done that, you, you know. But we're talking about trials. James just said something that might be pretty shocking. He said that every good and perfect gift comes from God. Remember, we're talking in the context of trials And in the context of survival mode, what James is getting at is that when you're in survival mode and you're under a trial, that is a good and perfect gift from God who can be trusted. That's what James is saying. It's not something to avoid. It's not something to try and and like, like superficially fix is something to go through, that he is the giver of every good gift. He can be trusted because he never changes, is what James says. He is in control. He brought forth the world. He brought forth humanity in that world. And he brought back, he brought forth salvation to him in that world. That he is in control and he can be trusted. And he gives us his very presence to help us thrive. And so to thrive, we must wholeheartedly trust in God to thrive. And the tables that we have up here, that's our our kind of perfect way to respond to this passage. Because let me tell you, coming up to this table shows two things. One, when you come up to the communion table, it shows that you have a wholehearted devotion to God. That you fully and completely trust in God in his way of salvation. Because that's what this table represents. That the, the, the crackers represent his body. The juice represents his blood that was shed so that you can have this good and right and personal relationship with the God who loves you and the God who made you. And when you come up to this table, you are saying, I trust wholeheartedly that this is true. 
Now, for some of you, it might be the first time that you come to this table with that kind of declaration that you are saying yes to Jesus and you are trusting what he did for you to have that kind of relationship with God. That's what this table is for. It's for those who come for the first time with that understanding and it's for those who come again with that understanding because not only does this table show that you have a wholehearted devotion to God, it also shows that you know and you fully believe that you can't have a wholehearted devotion to God by yourself that you need what this table represents to have that wholehearted devotion, that you need the truth of the gospel to even trust the God who gave us the gospel. And so by coming to this table, it shows that you understand you have a wholehearted devotion and that you can't have that wholehearted devotion by any effort of your own. And so for you, if this is your first time to come to this table with that kind of trust, I offer to you to accept Jesus' offer of salvation from sin and the power and penalty of sin and the judgment of God and instead start an internal relationship with him today. But for those of you who are coming again to this table with that trust, knowing that you can't have a wholehearted devotion of your own, what I ask you to do is before you come to this table, consider where you need the truth of the gospel to speak today, where you need God's wisdom, and you need to, to, to run the, the wisdom of the world through the, the truth of God's word and believe the truth of God's word. Where, where is that that your anchor needs to be? And that's what I ask you to consider today is, is, is where is your trust anchored? Is it, is it in success? The fleeting thing of success in job titles. Is it in wealth in your bank account? in your retirement account? Is it in the ever-changing advice of those who are meaning to do good? Most of them, not all of them, but most of them are meaning to do good. Or is it, or is it in the truth of God's word? Maybe when you come to this table, there's something that you need to confess before God. Where you have had a divided heart knowingly, and you know that because you have felt like the, the winds being tossed back and forth. And you know the truth of God's word. And maybe when you come to this table, it is a confession to, to leave here anchored in that truth and with both feet firmly planted in that truth. And maybe it is a, a time not only of confession, but of repentance where you turn away from something and turn back to God today. Whatever it is, I ask you to, to deal with it and then come down to this table. What'll happen is I'll pray. If you are a follower of Jesus, or this is your declaration to follow Jesus, come up to this table whenever you're ready. Grab a cracker and a juice and go back to your seat, and we'll take the elements together. Uh, The white plates are gluten-free, and so if you need gluten-free, we've got that. Well, let me pray for us. Band will come up here and play a little bit. Uh, We'll take our time. When everybody's done, we'll take the elements together. Jesus, you are a very good God. And so for you, Father, we ask to you, we ask you to speak. I ask for your Holy Spirit to move in the midst of this room and to speak from the heart of God to the heart of your people and to let us know where we're not trusting you, to let us know where our attentions and affections have been distracted, to let us know the wisdom that you have for us. And Father, to let us know where we need to anchor our souls today. And would you speak encouragement where we need encouragement and conviction where we need conviction. 
In Christ's name I pray, amen.
when Jesus gathered with his disciples, uh, he gathered for what they knew as the, as the Passover meal to celebrate the, the deliverance of Israel from Egypt where they were in bondage to, to Egypt and slavery that, that God delivered them into freedom and ultimately into the promised land. And they would have this meal to celebrate that. And, and so as Jesus was gathered together with them to celebrate the Passover that they knew, we now know it as the Last Supper, he, he did something unique. He, he, he turned the meaning of it from something in their past to something that was going to happen in their future. And, and because he, he pointed them to another deliverance that was needed, not just from the slavery of a nation, but from the slavery and bondage of sin. And he told them that, that he was going to be the one to deliver them from that bondage of slavery into the freedom of salvation. And he told them he took this piece of bread uh, that, that, that was to, to symbolize many things. And he told them, he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup. And if you do a Passover meal, there's multiple cups that you drink, and each one represents something else. And the last cup that you drink is the cup of deliverance, and it's the cup of joy, probably because you're four glasses in at that point. <laughs> but that's the truth, right? Like, that's, that's the way it is, and it is joy. And, and, and Jesus took that cup, and he held it up, and he said, this is my blood shed for you. Because he knows that in salvation, there is joy. And y'all, that's what we remember. That our gospel is joy. Our salvation brings us joy. Even when we're in trials, even when we're in survival mode, we have a God who can be trusted. So let's pray. Jesus, you can be trusted when life seems crazy, when we're barely making it. Just our nose and our lips are sticking out of the water, Father. You are there. And we trust you right now and we declare that trust as we go into to our final song, as we go into this last little bit of, of an opportunity to, to direct our words and our thoughts to you. May those words and thoughts be covered in trust. In Christ's name we pray, amen.